All right, y'all ready for some good news this morning? I hope so, because I got some. Before I get into it, I just want to let you know the Christmas service that we're going to be having. I think Danny said, you know, it's just one service, 10 o'clock, no Sunday school or anything like that. And I know that Christmas morning is not when uh, any family wants to be in a rush trying to get everybody ready for for church. So um, just let your kids finish opening up their presents and, and roll up here in their pajamas. I mean, seriously, that's what, no, Danny, you can't wear your pajamas. <laughs> the kids, okay, this is a kids only thing just for, that could go south real quick. So uh, just kids, let your kids come up here in their PJs and we'll have a good time together. All right, uh, let's go back to Luke chapter 22 again. We've been looking at some of the things that Jesus said at the Last Supper, and although the disciples didn't really get it at all at the time, anything that he was saying, the things that he did say were just so big. And he was telling them how everything was about to change dramatically once he completed what he came to do. Last week, we looked at what he meant when he took the wine and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I mean, just that right there, there is so much incredible truth and meaning in that one simple sentence. Today, we're going to look at some of the other things he said and also look at another loaded sentence, as in loaded with incredible meaning for us. So Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 24. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. Luke twenty two twenty four, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you will become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word and, Lord, the truth and all the good things that are contained in this. And, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see it. God, that we would be changed and transformed and have our minds renewed by by who you are and what you have done. Jesus, let us see you. God, let us see you in ways that some of us never have before and just be completely changed by that. Lord, more than anything else, I just want you to be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. So here in this heavy, profound, spiritual, historical moment, the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. 
And so it's no wonder they didn't really understand the things that Jesus was saying because, for one thing, they were too preoccupied with their own self-centered agenda. And, I mean, for them to be doing this at a time like this, I mean, while they were observing the Passover meal, the most, the holiest of, of celebrations and observances as a Jew, and then to be doing it with the one that the Passover was ultimately all about, I mean, it seems pretty childish of them to be doing this, doesn't it? And so, I mean, in that, we know now that Jesus can relate to some of the things that we as parents have to put up with with our kids at times. I mean, how many of you have had times where you've got the whole family sitting around the dinner table and maybe you're all holding hands and it's this spiritual family bonding moment and you're saying the prayer and before you can even finish saying amen, one of them's going, she had her eyes open the whole time. And, of course, then the other one will answer back, oh, yeah, well, how do you know? That means you had to have your eyes open. And so it's this who's better, who's greater kind of competition going there. And you're thinking, really, y'all? Come on. That's what I think of when I read about the disciples bickering over who is the greatest at the Passover meal. But what I really find interesting is that Jesus doesn't scold them for this. He doesn't go, really, guys, come on, don't you understand what's happening right here? I mean, he even seems to respond in a way that makes it seem like it's no big deal that they were talking about something like this. And I believe the reason why goes back to something that we talked about the first week of that series on shame. If you remember, I was talking about how in nearly every other culture of the world, they operate and relate to one another more on a shame and honor dynamic. Whereas here in our Western culture, we operate more on a guilt-forgiveness dynamic with one another. And the reason for that is because most other cultures in the world are centered around the group, the tribe, the community. But here, we focus more on the individual. And it's this shame-honor dynamic that has everything to do with what the disciples were arguing about. Honor is a big deal in Middle Eastern cultures. Honor was the highest value that one could achieve. And so Jesus didn't scold them for talking about this because it was common within that culture to be concerned about honor. But what he did do was tell them how honor is gained in his kingdom. He says that in order to receive great honor, you have to become the greatest servant, which completely upends the way that they had been conditioned to think of how honor is gained. In that culture, servants were the ones who had the least amount of honor, and those who were being served were looked at as having the greatest honor. And that's what Jesus was referencing in verse 27 when he asked him, For which one is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And, of course, the the disciples would have answered, yes. The one who's at the table is the one with the most honor. But Jesus was saying, yeah, that's the way things operate in the kingdom of this world. This worldly culture considers it a shameful thing to have to serve someone. But Jesus flips that completely upside down and says, but I am the one among you who serves. 
And so was he telling them that he was full of shame? Of course not. He was telling them that this is how honor is gained in his kingdom. The kingdom that they were just about to, to be a part of once he completed his mission. And this is one of the ways that he was saying that everything was about to change. He's saying there is about to be a revolution in the way that you've been used to living, in the way that you've been used to relating to one another. And what he says next signifies a dramatic shift, a revolution that was about to happen in the way that we relate to God. Starting in verse 29 again. Jesus said, And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. For Jesus to say that we are granted to eat and drink at his table is yet another example of the absolute magnitude of God's grace. If you've been coming here to this church for more than two years, then this shouldn't be new to you. It was two years ago this coming January that I preached a series of messages called A Place at the Table, which was all about this amazing truth of the gospel, which is the first point in your notes if you're following along in the guide there. Because of what Jesus has done, our relationship with God no longer centers around an altar. It now centers around a table. And there is a big difference between the two. You see, under the old covenant, in order to remain in good standing with God, the people had to continuously offer a sacrifice of an animal on the altar at the temple. Back then, under the old covenant, the people's relationship with God was based on what they had to do. Their obedience to following the rules of the law. And so it was saying essentially that if you make a sacrifice on the altar, God will forgive you, God will have favor on you, God will bless you and not kill you. And this was not an easy or painless thing for them to do. Animals were a precious commodity back then. One's, uh, the survival of one's household depended on their animals, and the number of animals that somebody owned was a sign of their wealth and well-being. So it was a very big deal to them to have to give up one of their animals, especially when, when there was none of it that they were going to utilize for themselves. But what made it even more painful was the fact that it was required that the animal that they did sacrifice had to be the very best one they had. They couldn't just present some old coal that they didn't want anyway, or something of the leftovers of their herd. It had to be the best of the best. And so because of that, this mentality developed among the people that essentially said or assumed that the more you give God, the more you sacrifice, or the better your sacrifice is, the more God will bless you. And folks... I hate to say it, but that same mentality is still rampant in the church today. And it also exists or has for many years with, with lots of preachers. And I've been guilty of basically teaching this, this same mentality at a point in my ministry before I 
really began to understand the truth of the gospel. And one of the reasons that, that preachers tend to do that is because, I mean, in all honesty, it's a great way to get people to do something that you want them to do. I mean, if a pastor wants people to give more money, volunteer more time, act better in their life, all he has to do is dangle the carrot of God's blessing out in front of them or scare them into action with threats of God withholding anything back from them. And so they'll say things like, if you would just sacrifice more of your time, more of your money, more of your flesh, then God is going to bless you more. But if you refuse to come to the altar and give God something, then he is not going to give you anything in return. I mentioned last week how I realized that as parents or at least for me, I find myself tending to, to parent with more of a focus on making sure my kids change their behavior than their hearts being changed. Because the truth is, we can manage and control and punish their behavior all day long, but if their hearts aren't changed at the end of the day, then, then ultimately what, what good is a behavior change? I mean, the change in behavior will be very temporary at best, but if we can guide them into a heart change, then the behavior is just going to take care of itself. Now, that does not mean that we are just to ignore bad behavior. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that our strategy and our goals need to have a different focus than strictly them making sure that they are acting right at all times. We need to be focusing on the heart change of our children because that's God's focus in us. He's concerned about changing our hearts, knowing that our actions are just going to mirror that. And I believe that many pastors tend to have this same mentality when it comes to their church members. So many of them just put such an emphasis on behavior that the heart problems are never addressed and therefore never changed. And when behavior becomes the goal, then we will use any and all tactics in order to achieve that. And the most effective tactics are using things like guilt and shame and condemnation and fear. I mean, those are great motivators to get people to act however you want them to. But what good is a change in behavior if there is no change in a person's affection, adoration, and awe of Christ? It'll ultimately get you nowhere. But I'm telling you, when you see Jesus for who he is and understand what he has done to the point where you begin to value him above all else, you'll never feel the need to chase after another carrot that's been dangled out in front of you again. And all those other tactics won't even work on you anymore. You'll be immune to all the attempts to use guilt and shame and condemnation and fear. You won't feel like you have to do something for God so that he will do something for you in return because you know that there is nothing more you can do to gain anything that you don't already have in Jesus. You won't have to be guilted into giving anything, whether it be your money or anything like that, or tempted to to, to give in order to get more blessings because you realize that giving is the blessing. 
And you begin to look for every opportunity to do it. You won't be manipulated into obedience in order to get a blessing from God because you understand that obedience is the blessing. When you get a revelation of who Jesus is, everything that you do for him suddenly becomes a want to instead of a have to. And here's the truth of the gospel. Everything that you might think that you need to do in order to gain God's blessing, his favor, his forgiveness, or whatever, has already been done for you. Everything that you might think that you have to do in order to get that, Jesus has already done for you. Listen, there is nothing that you can sacrifice on some metaphorical altar that will gain you anything that Jesus' sacrifice hasn't already purchased for you. He no longer deals with us at the altar. He deals with us at the table. The full and final sacrifice of himself has eliminated the need for any more altars. Next point. The table is where we receive and enjoy everything that Jesus' sacrifice purchased for us. I mean, this goes completely against everything that a lot of us have been conditioned to believe. I mean, we've taken this whole no pain, no gain mentality and applied it to our relationship with God. I know that that's how I used to live for much of my Christian walk. No pain, no gain, and think that the more I I struggle, the more I sacrifice, the more I feel the pain in whatever it is that I'm giving up, then the more, more gain I will, the more I will gain God. The gospel says that Jesus endured all the pain on your behalf. He endured the pain for you. And it's not that he purchased a certain amount. Now you've got to do some other things in order to get the rest. No, he purchased all of it. More than you could ever imagine. More than you could ever use up in this lifetime. More than you ever even intended to get. He purchased it all. When Jesus told the disciples, I'm among you as one who serves, he wasn't just talking about what was happening right there in that room with the Passover table. He's talking about our ongoing relationship with him, how things are going to operate in his kingdom with us belonging to him now. And again, saying that the greatest honor in God's kingdom belongs to the greatest servant, which in God's kingdom is Jesus. Jesus referred to himself as a servant many times throughout his ministry. In Matthew 20, 28, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And look at what he said in Luke 12, 37, up on the screen. He's talking about when he returns, the second coming. He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up And wait on them. He's talking about himself. And a lot of times when we see Jesus talking about a referencing a table, 
I think a lot of times we only think that he's referring to what things will be like when we leave this world and go to heaven. But that's not the case at all. Jesus, because of what he has done, because of his death and resurrection, there is now a table for us to receive from now. Yes, when he returns, we are all going to sit down at a real table and feast on his goodness, but we don't have to wait to die in order to do that. He has made it all available to us now. I'll tell you, one of the reasons I think it can be hard for us to accept God's grace for what it really is, I think we tend to think that it somehow dishonors or belittles him to say that we don't have to do anything but simply receive what he provides. And we tend to think that it it, it honors him more if we serve him rather than him serving us. But Jesus just pointed out that that mentality is the one of this world. That's not how things operate in his kingdom. The greatest is the servant. And so I guess the question for us is, does it belittle Jesus to say that he was and is and forever will be the servant of his people? It would only if servant means one who takes orders. It would dishonor him and be belittling if we thought that it meant that we were his masters. But it does not belittle him to say that he is the one who can service us with what we need most. It does not dishonor him for us to say that he is the inexhaustible source of all that we need. And the more that we depend on his service, the more amazing his resources appear. Now this whole mentality of if I do this, God will do this. It causes us to to want to try to buy things from God, buy blessings. And we try to buy these blessings with with money that God doesn't recognize in his kingdom. We try to buy him off with sacrifices and commitment and service and promises and acts of goodness and obedience. But none of that, none of that will gain you anything that you don't already have in Jesus. Now, I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. Next point in your notes. The only currency that is recognized as legal tender in God's kingdom is need. It's need. And what I mean by that is, for instance, in the United States, you can't buy anything with currency from a foreign country because it's not recognized as legal tender here. The only thing the United States recognizes as legal tender is the dollar. The only currency recognized as legal tender in God's kingdom is need. And then the next point, God is not glorified by what we can do for him. He is most glorified by what he can do for us and by what he has done for us. You see, he's most glorified by us coming to him, admitting that we have nothing to give that would be considered worthy of a blessing. Coming to him and admitting 
that we can do nothing good enough, nothing impressive enough that would be worthy for him to bless us. Folks, there is nothing that we can do. No impressiveness can be produced from us that doesn't already exist in him. He is so impressed with himself that everything else doesn't even come close to that. How arrogant it is for us to think that we can give something or do something that would be worthy enough for for him to bless us in return in some way. All we have, y'all, all we can bring him is the absolute need of his mercy and grace. God, I have nothing to give. I need you. And he is pleased and honored to provide it. You know what is dishonoring to him? It's to think that there is something that we can do that will gain us what he's already purchased. To have the mindset, if I do more for God, he'll do more for me, that is belittling because it sends the message that what he's done wasn't enough. Jesus, that was a great thing you did, but, but it wasn't quite enough. There's some more I need, and so now i got to do this to cover up what he didn't cover? I don't think so. What he did was enough. Have you ever done something for someone just out of the goodness of your heart, not expecting anything in return, just because you wanted to bless them, and then they turn around and want to pay you for that? How does that make you feel? It kind of robs you of that blessing, doesn't it? And it belittles what you've done. That's exactly what we do to Jesus when we think that there is more that we have to do or that we've got to somehow pay him back for what he's done for us. It belittles his grace. I love the story that Kenny Thacker told when he was here preaching one Sunday that if you were here, you'll remember this. He talked about the single mom in his church that had a little girl and they were dirt poor. They, they couldn't afford anything, much less a, a coat in the wintertime. And there was a very wealthy lady in his church that noticed this little girl in, in the middle of winter. All she had was this raggedy old thin jacket and she was freezing. And so this wealthy lady went to Neiman Marcus and bought the finest, most expensive coat she could find. And she went to this little girl's mother and said that she wanted to give this to her. And the girl's mother was beside herself. She's like, I, I cannot receive this. There's no way. I mean, this is too nice. This is too expensive. And then he was like, no, please, let me do this. I want to do this for your little girl. And she said, well, I've got to do something in return for you. I've got to pay you back somehow. I don't have the money, obviously, but I can clean your house or do something. I mean, she was belligerent about this. And the wealthy lady said, okay, here's how you can pay me back. If you could just let me see your daughter wear this coat, that's all the payment I need. That's the best way you can pay me back. Folks, that's what God wants from us. He simply wants to see us receive and enjoy everything that he purchased for us with his blood. 
Now, some are going to think, well, what about losing it? Begin wondering if there's any circumstance that we could find ourselves in where the table of His grace and goodness wouldn't be available for us to receive from. The answer to that, I believe, is found in what Jesus says next to Peter. After telling the disciples that they're going to eat and drink at his table, he immediately turns to Peter and tells him that he's going to deny Jesus three times. Look at it, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, it seems like an odd place for Jesus to be saying this right here. It's like he's just going along here and what he's saying, and it seems like he just shifts gears without even engaging the clutch. It's just this drastic shift. But I believe that Jesus was letting all of them know that there, were never, there will never be a situation that we can find ourselves in where the table of his grace and his goodness will not be available to us. Even in the times where it seems like Satan is sifting you like wheat, his table is there for you to receive. Even when you fall and you do something that you know was wrong, the table of his grace and mercy is there. Even in the darkest times where it seems like the whole world itself is against you, his table is there. I mean, after all, what did David say in the 23rd Psalm? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus was saying, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, as hard and as dark and as difficult as it may seem, the table of my grace and goodness is there for you to receive from, to feast on all that I've purchased for you. Jesus wants to serve you at that table. When it comes to us being a servant, because I know some of you think, well, the Bible talks about us being a servant a lot too, doesn't it? It does. But the way Jesus wants us to be a servant is by serving one another. He wants us to dispense to others what we receive at his table. I mean, look at what he was saying here to Peter. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me. The table of my goodness is going to be available. You're going to see that. And when you receive from that, I want you to turn around and dispense it to your brothers. So Peter did deny Jesus. And in the depth of guilt and shame for what he had done, he saw the risen Jesus standing on the seashore. And he dove in the water and went to him. And Jesus had breakfast prepared. And he fed him. Then he asked him three times if he loved him, redeeming all three times that Peter denied him. And so even in the midst of Peter's guilt and shame and condemnation, Jesus showed him the table. And he let Peter feast of his goodness and grace. And Jesus said, now, go and strengthen your brothers. Go dispense to them what I have given you. He wants us to serve one another, but in order for us to do that, he doesn't have to twist our arm or dangle some carrot out in front of us. 
He knows that when we do come to his table, that we'll be so full of his goodness that we can't help but let it out. I mean, when you feast on his grace, it, it's got to come back out somehow to others. You, you, you're incapable of just keeping it in. Like Jeremiah said, it, it's like a fire in my bones that I cannot contain. It's got to come out either in the money you give or the words of blessing that you speak to someone or operating in your spiritual gift or, or whatever. And you see it's because it's his grace. It is the grace of what God has done through his son. That is what transforms and completely changes our heart. And when your heart is changed, your actions begin to mirror that. So my encouragement to you this morning is to pull up a chair at the table that Jesus has provided for you through the shedding of his blood. It'll change you forever. Let's pray. God, like I've said so many times, Lord, the news of what you have done, God, sometimes just seems too good to be true. Well, we admit that it is beyond us. It's beyond our own human capacity to, to figure it out, to understand it, to make sense of it, to be able to grasp it. So Holy Spirit, again, I'm calling on you and saying, allow us to do that. Allow us to see Jesus for who he is. Allow us to see just how immense and how powerful your grace really is. God, I know there have been so many people who have just been living under this weight of performance. This weight of guilt, wondering if what they have done is, is enough for you to even like them, for you to even look their way and hear their prayer, much less send a blessing to them. Lord, I pray that that would all be removed this morning, God, and in, with an encounter that somebody has with your grace, knowing that there's nothing more that they can do, much less have to do, because you've already done it all for them. God, we don't deserve that. But it wouldn't be grace if we did. And so for those of us who have been made a part of your kingdom, through the faith in what you've done, Jesus, I pray that our lives will begin reflecting this. That we don't have to grovel, grovel for the crumbs from your table, Lord. We can pull up a place as sons and daughters of the Father and feast on everything that you have provided for us. And Lord, I pray for anybody in here this morning who came in here not a part of your kingdom. Because they've been trying to build their own kingdom. Living according to the kingdom of this world. Lord, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would show them the absolute futility in that. And that they would see their immense need for you. And they'd be transformed by your grace, Lord, that your grace and your kindness would lead them to complete repentance. 
Lord, may the things that we say, think, and do line up with the way that you say, that you think, and the way that you do things. That people may know that you are real, that you are alive and well, and you are powerful. And there is a kingdom not of this world that we get the privilege of belonging to. Holy Spirit, I know you're not done this morning. I know that there's more that you yet want to do in somebody's life. And so I'm asking you to do that. Do everything that I'm incapable of doing from here on out, Lord. And we give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close in worship, it's going to be a time of ministry that I want to encourage you to take advantage of. That if God is speaking to you directly through something in this, and you just you need to tell somebody about it, tell them. Whether it be your neighbor right there in your pew or the leaders that'll be of the church that'll be down here on the front rows. So if you want them to pray for you, but also take advantage of it as a time for us to serve one another.